Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name's Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show is about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that's important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so... Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of a segment we call How'd We Ever Get That? The goal of How'd We Ever Get That? is to demonstrate how scientists, mathematicians, engineers, people like that, how they've influenced our everyday lives. You might not think that science has much to do with you, but you would be wrong. Science affects us all every single day of our lives. Today's example of how'd we ever get that is the concept that carbon dioxide is a major greenhouse gas. Oh, I hope you're not feeling a little let down after that music, but this idea of carbon dioxide being our major greenhouse gas is a very important one because we are now putting so much of it into the air. So today I thought I would tell you a little bit of the history of this discovery. How did we realize that carbon dioxide has such an important impact on our planet? The little bit of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere we had a few hundred years ago is critical to our life. I mean, there would not be life on planet if it wasn't for some CO2 in the air because we'd be frozen ice cubes right now. But now that human activity is resulting in a rapid increase in CO2 levels, it's a little bit too much of a good thing. Now you'll hear climate change deniers tell you that carbon dioxide is actually a good thing, not a bad thing, and I agree immediately. Like I said, without carbon dioxide in the atmosphere protecting us from freezing to death, we would be in trouble. The question is, are we now in a situation where there's too much of a good thing, which we are? And then you'll also hear theories by climate change deniers that Perhaps this whole issue of CO2 in the atmosphere and the greenhouse effect, that's a hoax, probably perpetrated by the Chinese or what have you. Of course, that's a preposterous idea, and I would hope that anyone who claims that would just be ignored by the rest of us. Well, who was it that originally realized that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas? Well, there was a recent discovery that actually gives us a better idea about who originally came to this realization. Up till recently, it was believed that it was a physicist in Ireland, a male, who first published research back in 1859 showing that CO2 gas in our atmosphere absorbs solar energy. But now an earlier publication on this topic has been discovered, and this earlier publication appeared three years earlier than 1859 and was written by a female, an American inventor who first published on this topic in 1856. But first, what is a greenhouse gas anyway? Now, gas is one of the fundamental states of matter in our universe. (laughs) The other states of matter are solids, liquids, and plasma. And plasma doesn't actually occur on Earth anyway. The distinguishing characteristic of gases is that the different atoms or molecules are relatively far apart in a gas. In liquids, the atoms or molecules are a whole lot closer 
and in solids they are quite closely packed and even strongly bonded with one another. Now not all gases are greenhouse gases. The primary greenhouse gases on our planets are water vapor, methane, nitrous oxide, ozone, and good old carbon dioxide. The vast majority of the gases in our air are dinitrogen, which is N2, two, two atoms of nitrogen, dioxygen, which is O2, two atoms of oxygen bonded together, and argon. None of these are actually greenhouse gases because these molecules or atoms are binding to their own kind rather than binding to some other chemical element. So dinitrogen is just two nitrogen atoms bonded to each other. Same with dioxygen. Argon just occurs by itself. Greenhouse gases are heterogeneous molecules. A greenhouse gas is a molecule composed of two different kinds of chemical element atoms that are bonded to each other. Like as I mentioned before, water vapor is an oxygen bonded to two hydrogen atoms. Methane is a carbon bonded to four hydrogens. Nitrous oxide is a nitrogen atom bonded to two other oxygen atoms. And carbon dioxide is one carbon bonded to two oxygen atoms. The fact that these gas molecules contain atoms that are not equal in size and charge means that they end up not sharing their energy equally. This uneven distribution of energy within that molecule allows them to absorb external energy, like solar energy from the sun, a whole lot better. It was a French mathematician slash physicist by the name of Joseph Fourier who calculated that the Earth really should be a lot cooler than it actually is. It was in the 1820s that he predicted that the Earth is far enough away from the Sun that our average temperature should be below freezing. Well, why isn't the planet that cold? He determined that it was the radiant energy from the Sun that was somehow getting converted into heat on Earth and that heat was somehow being trapped on Earth, thus warming our planet up. Now, Fourier got this idea from another scientist by the name of Ferdinand de Saussure. De Saussure lived in Switzerland in the 1700s. By the way, don't I have excellent French accent? Anyway, de Saussure is thought of as the founder of modern meteorology. And one of the things he's known for is building this insulated container that could be fitted with several panes of glass. What he would do would allow sunlight to enter the container through those consecutive panes of glass. There was airspace between each glass. And he noticed that it got progressively warmer inside the box when there were more panes of glass for the sunlight to pass through. You've experienced this yourself in your own car. On a winter day where it's cold outside, but your car is parked out in the sunlight, you get into the car and it's warm. Or in the summertime, it'll be hot outside, but you get into your car and it's even hotter. You feel like you're going to melt inside of the car, it's so hot. Well, that's the same idea. The sunlight's passing through the glass and somehow getting trapped by the glass itself. So Joseph Furrier was inspired by these experiments of de Saussure and he developed this idea that perhaps gases in the atmosphere could act the same as glass. This later came to be called the greenhouse effect because greenhouses used to all be made out of glass. Well, Furrier was back in the 1820s. If you jump 30 years after that, you have the experiments of John Tyndall. 
John Tyndall was an Irish physicist who carried out a series of experiments showing that carbon dioxide, water vapor, and methane were all very efficient at absorbing radiant energy. Tyndall produced quantitative data about this and he speculated that changes in the concentration of those gases in the atmosphere could have an impact on climate. Recently, however, historians have become aware of another scientist who communicated this idea of carbon dioxide being a greenhouse gas three years earlier than Tyndall. This researcher was an American inventor by the name of Eunice Foote. Eunice Foote's research was presented in 1856 at a conference of an organization that's now known as the American Association for the Advancement of Science, AAAS. And that's basically the most prestigious scientific organization in the United States, if not the world. Now, you might have noticed that I said her research was presented because she did not actually present the paper herself. Someone else did. Needless to say, it was a man. Now, I don't know if she didn't present her own research because she didn't want to, or if non-members were not allowed to present research, or if it was a case of discrimination against her because she was a woman. I don't know, but someone else did present her research. So, Eunice Foote had this research showing that CO2 acted like glass does in trapping heat, and it was published in a very reputable conference proceedings three years before Tyndall published his paper. Now, usually when a person publishes a paper, they review the previous literature. They sort of give an introduction to the topic and talk about what other researchers have accomplished in that area and then show how this new paper is going to build on that. Well, Tyndall apparently did not mention Ms. Foote's research at all in his paper. The historians that I have read discussing this issue, however, do not think that Tyndall neglected Foote's research for some nefarious reason, because she was a woman, or because she was an American, or because she didn't have the credentials that some scientists have. It appears that Tyndall honestly didn't know about Foote's research. Although Foote made an important discovery, her results were not really definitive. Their experiments had some uncontrolled factors, and so maybe it didn't get the publicity that it might have otherwise gotten. But I'm not going to defend Tyndall, though. He made a mistake. He should have acknowledged the work of Eunice Foote in his paper. It's just not professional. And it does make you wonder if the situation would have been different if she had been a man. And it also makes me ask the question, are there other stories of female scientists who have done great things without getting the proper recognition? There probably are. Well, our story is not over yet. This was the 1850s. Flash forward to the 1890s when a Swedish scientist by the name of Sawante Arrhenius made the calculations for the relationship between specific CO2 levels in the atmosphere and the amount of heating that would occur. Arrhenius calculated that if atmospheric CO2 levels doubled, it would raise global temperatures by 5 to 6 degrees centigrade. Now this was 1890s, so at the rate that fossil fuels were being burned then, Arrhenius predicted that it would take 3,000 years before that would actually happen, that the Earth would get warmer by 5 to 6 degrees. Well, in 1896, when he published this paper, the CO2 levels in the atmosphere were about 295 parts per million. 295. Well, CO2 levels are now at 407 parts per million. 
So CO2 levels have increased 38% since the time of Arrhenius and it's still increasing rapidly. So if CO2 levels have increased by almost 40 percent in 122 years, Arrhenius's prediction of a 100 percent increase in 3,000 years was way too conservative. It was back in 1957 that scientists started really accurately measuring the amount of CO2 in the Earth's atmosphere. They did this at a weather station in Mauna Loa in Hawaii and also at a station in the Antarctic as that CO2 data accumulated in the 1960s and the 1970s, climatologists and meteorologists began making really good, precise models for predicting how CO2 levels might actually influence global climate patterns. If CO2 is a greenhouse gas and if CO2 levels are increasing due to burning of fossil fuels, then what will actually happen to Earth's overall temperature and climate patterns? Between 1965 and 1979, there were 71 different research papers focusing on predicting what might happen to global temperatures in the future as CO2 levels continue to rise. These early predictions, they varied widely because there were so many factors to consider. Things like, what is the best way to measure Earth's temperature? Do you measure the air, the water, the ground? What parts of the planet are you measuring? Are you going to measure at the poles? At the equator? Where? How important are air and ocean currents? What about human populations? Do you measure temperatures near cities? And how do you measure feedback mechanisms like cloud cover? Because clouds shade the earth and then there's ice cover that actually reflects sunlight back out. Of those 71 predictions made between 1965 and 1979, 62% of them, as 44 of those papers, 62% predicted that the average Earth temperature was going to increase. That's almost two-thirds. Seven of them, that's 10% of those papers, predicted that the Earth was going to cool. And then the other 28% of the papers were more neutral meaning that they predicted no change in the temperature or they didn't feel strong enough about the data to make a sound prediction. So seven of these early papers predicted that the Earth was going to get cool in the future. And climate deniers, or you could call them climate change skeptics, will often really make a big deal out of this. They say that these climatologists back in the 60s and 70s, they were all predicting that the Earth was going to get colder and now that they're predicting the Earth is going to get warmer, it just shows you what lousy scientists they are. Well, if someone tells you that, just remember to respond that 62% of the scientists back then were predicting the Earth was going to get warmer, not cooler. Only 10% were predicting that cooler temperature. Well, what about these seven research papers back in the 60s and 70s that predicted the Earth was getting cooler? Why are they saying that? Well, the Earth at that time was actually getting cooler. One big reason for that was air pollution. Don't forget that the Clean Air Act was passed in 1963, but didn't actually take effect until 1970. The EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, wasn't even established until 1970. And since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, our air has been increasingly filled with aerosols, dust, fumes, smoke, whatever you want to call it, and that air pollution was actually reducing the amount of sunlight hitting the earth. But now we have fewer problems with those kind of particulates in the air and CO2 can have a much greater impact on our climate. 
So some climatologists didn't see a change in how air pollution was going to continue to cool the Earth, and so they made that prediction of Earth cooling. The vast majority of them realized, however, that the greenhouse effect was going to be even more powerful. So don't get me wrong, we still have air pollution problems, but go back and look at pictures of Los Angeles or Chicago or New York or Louisville back in the 1960s where there'd be this brown haze hanging over the city every day. You just don't see that severe of a problem anymore. So don't lose this argument with climate skeptics. Nowadays, 97% of the climatologists think that human activity is responsible for global warming. Now I think it's up to the rest of us to burn less fossil fuel by driving less, driving energy efficient vehicles, turning off lights, adjusting our thermostats, using technology intelligently, eating less meat, and pushing for more renewable sources of energy like solar and wind. Of course, making economic, political, and social change is another way to attack this problem. This has been another episode of How Did We Ever Get That? How did we become aware that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas? Well, by centuries of effort, by countless scientists and mathematicians, both male and female, some celebrated and some not, from all around the world. Thank you. Well, now let's stop talking about the past and talk about the present. In fact, there it is, the music that indicates the latest breaking news. Well, as you know, wildfires are in the news again, especially the one called Campfire that's been going on in California for more than two weeks now. It's burned more than 100,000 acres, it's destroyed more than 10,000 homes, and at this writing has killed 83 people, with 500 people remaining missing. Well, I wanted to tell you about an article that was published in the New York Times Tuesday, November 13, 2018 issue. It's a fact check written by Kendra Pierre-Lewis. And what facts is she checking? Of course, it's a couple tweets by Donald J. Trump about the wildfires in California. Believe it or not, these two tweets are somewhat misleading and oversimplified, and she has written this article to clarify the situation. And I thought it was interesting enough to relate to you. Trump's first tweet is, here's the quote, There is no reason for these massive, deadly, and costly forest fires in California, except that forest management is so poor, unquote. Well, the author of the fact check points out that actually it's not even a forest fire that we're talking about in terms of the campfire, and then there's another fire called the Wolseley Fire. And it's because the fire's actually not in a devoted forest. It's in an area called a wildland-urban interface, according to experts. These are places where communities are close to undeveloped areas, and it makes it easy for the fire to move from forest or grasslands into the neighborhood. Apparently, the USDA issued a report in 2015 that found that between the years 2000 and 2010, the number of people moving into the urban wildland interface increased by 5%. Apparently, something like one out of every three houses in the United States now is actually located in the wildland urban interface. 44 million houses in all, and the highest concentration of these houses that are right next to wildland areas is Florida, Texas, and California. The author of this fact check points out that California wildfires are getting larger 
and that most of the state's largest wildfires have happened since the year 2000. And apparently these fires are becoming more unpredictable, too. To quote Kendra Pierre-Lewis's article, she says, They are often burning hot through the night when they used to cool, racing faster up hillsides and torching neighborhoods that were once relatively safe, unquote. Experts are attributing at least part of this unpredictability of these wildfires to climate change. Plant material is dried up, the soil is drier, and the fire burns faster and more easily. The other Donald Trump statement that's fact-checked in this article is this one. This is Trump speaking. Billions of dollars are given each year with so many lives lost, all because of gross mismanagement of the forest. Remedy now or no more Fed payments, unquote. This quote seems to be hinting that it's the federal government that's paying for California state government to manage the land there. But it turns out that actually most of the forests in California are federally owned, not state owned. Of the state's 33 million acres of forest, the U.S. Forest Service and the U.S. Interior Department own and manage about 57%. So that means about 57% of California's forests are under Trump's purview not California's. And then about 40% of the forest in California is owned by families, Native American tribes or companies, including industrial timber companies. Just 3% of California forests are actually owned and managed by state and local agencies. Now, to be fair, the Forest Service has tried to rectify past forest management practices. They're conducting more prescribed burns. You know, these are controlled burns to get rid of dead vegetation. They tend to fuel future fires. But the budget is just being overwhelmed by the cost of fighting these wildfires. Now, Congress is trying to fix some of this problem by establishing a dedicated firefighting fund in the federal budget so there could be more money devoted to management of the forests. But those monies don't become available until next year. One of the issues that always comes up when you're discussing forest management and fires has to do with selective cutting. The logging industry has always been advocating selective cutting The idea of going into established forests and pulling out the trees that are dead or dying selectively as a way of reducing the amount of dead wood material that's there to catch fire in the future. To quote this November 13 article in New York Times by Kendra Pierre-Lewis, she says, As fires have gotten bigger and more destructive, the administration and Republicans in Congress have supported calls by the timber industry to clear out potential fuel by letting the land be logged, unquote. There's this editorial written in USA Today by Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke. He says, Every year we watch our forests burn, and every year there is a call for action. Yet when action comes, and we try to thin forests of dead and dying timber, or we try to sustainably harvest timber from dense and fire-prone areas, we are attacked with frivolous litigation from radical environmentalists who would rather see forests and communities burn than see a logger in the woods, unquote. It's true that there is a lot of dead timber in California's forests, something like 129 million dead trees spread across 8.9 million acres, according to the Forest Service. But the idea is that these dead trees don't actually catch fire that easily by themselves. 
there was an ecologist at the Earth Island Institute who draws an analogy about starting a campfire. You don't just put a bunch of huge logs down and put a match under it and expect it to catch fire. I learned that in Boy Scouts. You put kindling under there first and then you slowly build the fire with bigger and bigger pieces of wood once the kindling starts burning. Well, the selective logging that the timber industry wants to do will get rid of the big trees, but it's not going to get rid of the kindling, the dried branches, the brush, the bushes, the twigs that are left on the forest floor. In fact, I remember hiking in the lower Rocky Mountains of Arizona where they had done some selective clearing, and there would be big piles of brush left behind. All the limbs, the branches from the pine trees that they took, they would just leave them up in a big pile. So that's actually creating more of a problem than less of one. Also, California ecologists are pointing out that logging enables the spread of cheatgrass, which is a highly combustible weed. It's a grass. It's a dry grass. And that makes the forest even more likely to burn. Apparently, the wooded land around Paradise, California, that's the community in California that was so badly damaged by the campfire recently, that wooded area had actually been logged selectively about a decade ago. But in spite of that, the city is still in ashes. So there are multiple causes of wildfires. Climate change, urbanization, how forests are managed. Those are all issues that go into explaining why forest fires happen in one place and not the other. Thanks for pointing all that out, Donald. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time. 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP LP 106.5 FM your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.